Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific Century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. Each episode, we bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Today, my colleague Rich Verma is unable to join me. He's busy doing business, but I'm excited to welcome Ali Wine, a policy analyst at the Rand Corporation, a good friend to the Tea Leaves broadcast. He's here with us in the studio. One of the things that we committed to do when we started uh, Tea Leaves was to make this intergenerational. I would say among the people that focus on the Asia-Pacific region, Ali is one of the most promising, capable, uh, energetic, uh, enthusiastic folks I've ever worked with. And so we wanted to bring him in to get his views about where the Asia-Pacific is headed, how a younger person thinks about making his or her way in the field, and uh, generally his view on politics and strategy in the current hour. Ali, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Great. So let's let's just get started. I was... Uh, graduate student at the Kennedy School. So mm-hmm. I had a chance to work with all the luminaries there. And uh, I worked then at the time on a project called the ANW, the Avoiding Nuclear mm-hmm. War Project, that was a big deal in the 1980s and 1990s. And Joe Nye and Graham Allison, all these guys that were not, neither hawks nor doves, they were owls in the middle. They they were the ones that sort of animated this work. I was, I was not much, a little bit younger than you are now, but I worked on that project behind the scenes, we used to call that project the, the A&W, the Avoiding New Work uh, Project. <laughs> but I enjoyed growing up there. I wondered now, so you've come a, a little bit after me, so you worked closely with those folks up there. What was it like working with Graham on his book? He's just done this uh, you know, a fascinating book that's mm-hmm. widely commented on around Thucydides on the U.S.-China relationship and where that's headed. What was that like working with him, and what was your overall experience like there at Harvard? Uh, Graham is somebody who, he has high expectations of himself, and he accordingly has high expectations of the folks who work for him. And so he works you hard, but he really invests in you. And I would say that when I when I came, when I when I when I look at myself prior to coming to the Kennedy School, so at the time I was a research assistant, not a student. Uh, when I arrived in September 2009, I worked for Graham for about maybe two and a half, uh, close to three years. And when I compare my analytical thinking prior to starting, after start, uh, after leaving, uh, I think that my analytical thinking, while still very limited, it grew in leaps and bounds. Um, so he was he was a demanding boss, but a very good boss, a very important boss. And he's somebody who's been a mentor to me ever since we met. Uh, I actually, uh, prior to working for him full time, I actually interned for him when I was an undergraduate. So I interned for him the summer of my junior year, and he took a chance on me. We had never met, uh, but a professor of mine put in a recommendation. So he took a chance on a nobody, and I'm eternally in his debt for having done so. So I think he's made me into a stronger analytical thinker. He has helped me think in a more structured way, in a more logical way. I, I agree, and I uh, I have the same experience, and he's always been that energetic, creative, interesting person. My experience is a, is a little different. Um, I, I, I'm not sure it was a huge support of me at the outset, but over time, I think I grew on him, uh, some like fungus or something, I'm not sure what, but <laughs> but we, we ended up fishing a lot together mm-hmm. in Alaska, and I remember in the 2000s, at that time, he was completely focused, appropriately, on the nuclear threat 
ridding the world of nuclear weapons, the sort of the remnants of the Cold War, the former Soviet Union. And I was always saying, hey, you got to focus more on Asia. Uh, and then once he did, he's gone gangbusters. Mm -hmm. And I think this has really animated all of his strategic thinking and creativity of late, how to think about the relationship between the United States and China. So I want to ask you, I often try to pin him down. So he'll often tell you what Lee Kuan Yew would have said mm -hmm. or what he believed. And if you read carefully uh, Thucydides' trap, uh, Graham skirts some of the hard questions about whether the United States and China are fundamentally destined to confrontation and conflict. What do you think? So we actually, we had a conversation. So he sent me the proofs of his book. And one of the comments that I made to him was that Graham, so I think if I remember correctly on the proofs of the book, it said destined for war, colon, but there wasn't a question mark. There wasn't a question mark at the end. And so I said to Graham, because he doesn't argue that the United States and China are, are fated to war. So his argument, as I understand it, and I, I hope I'm characterizing him correctly, is that if the United States and China don't make creative adjustments to their relationship, if they don't have what he likes to call a surge of strategic imagination, then on balance, there's a likelihood that the United States and China will go to war. But I told Graham, I said, you should include a question mark somewhere in your title so that folks, and I, I told him, look at what, remember what happened to Francis Fukuyama. When Francis Fukuyama wrote his book, The End of History, it, it was based off of an article that he had published in the National Interest. The National Interest article had a question mark. It was the end of history question mark. And so folks who read just the title would say, well, well perhaps Francis Fukuyama himself isn't sure if it's the end of history. When he approached his publisher and, and published a book-length version, they deleted the question mark. And so a lot of folks, and, and he comes in for this ritual flogging every year. Francis Fukuyama in his book predicted the end of history, predicted that democracy wouldn't face any yeah. authoritarian challenges. And Frank Fukuyama, he recently gave an interview. He said, I've been trying to run away from that book ever since I published it, but I'm resigned, but that's my fate. So I said to Graham, you want to avoid the Francis Fukuyama fate, put in a question mark. So he doesn't believe that the United States and China are fated to war. Um, he thinks that History is, is sobering. And so I, I, if I were sort of summarizing the, the takeaways from the book, I would say Graham says that if you look at the record of confrontations between rising and or resurgent powers and the preeminent powers at the time, the historical record is not encouraging. That's lesson one. Lesson two, the United States and China, uh, as students of history, have an obligation to, to look at that historical record. Um, and, and I would also make the argument that where I where I pushed Graham a little bit, or one of the points I pushed him on a little bit is, I actually am not as convinced about the analogy between the U.S.-China analogy and the Britain-Germany analogy. So, yeah. so we hear a lot, and, and understandably, we hear a lot that there was a, a rising Germany. It was asserting its place in the world. Uh, the Kaiser Wilhelm felt that Germany had been deprived its rightful place in the world, and it was challenging Britain. So on the surface, there are important similarities. Uh, but there are a few differences that I think are, are notable. Number one, uh, Germany was much more reckless in its assault on, on then the prevailing, on the prevailing order, much more militaristic in its designs. Uh, China is, of course, and, and as you, uh, you, know, you and uh, Eli pointed out in your foreign affairs piece, which I would like to talk about because I think it's a very important piece, China certainly is investing in its military modernization. Uh, it is investing heavily in anti-access area denial capabilities. Um, there is increasingly a, an ideological dimension to U.S.-China conflict. But I would say that the core of U.S.-China competition today, as I understand it, it's economic and technological. Yeah. It's not the only aspect of competition, but it's a core element. Whereas I think that with Britain and Germany, it was a much more militarily and I would say principally uh, maritime, naval, navally focused uh, conflict. Great. 
So, Ali, let me let me uh, take this back now. We, we now we've talked about our mentors and our respective experiences. Let me ask you about your own experience. So, you you've now been in Washington for a bit. You've established yourself at Rand. You are actively engaged politically. You play a role in a lot of uh, think tanks and working groups that are thinking about Asia. How do you uh, make your way as a young person in this field? Uh, what are the obstacles? What are the challenges? What are the things that you find rewarding? So first on the on the challenges side, the I would say that the first challenge is just the media environment. So, you know, for folks who were for folks who were coming of age professionally, let's say a generation ago or two generations ago, you you thought to yourself, okay, I wanna I wanna publish in foreign affairs, foreign policy. So there are a few magazines you had your sights on. You would want to come on television, you would want to come on radio, but there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter, there was no YouTube. I think for folks who are coming of age now professionally, uh, getting yourself out there on social media, it's not just, it's not something you do on the side. I think it's actually very, a very integral part of the craft and it's time consuming. Uh, you know, a lot of, and particularly with Twitter, sure, tw- people make the argument and I'm somewhat sympathetic to it that Twitter is not, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the most nuanced conversations, but there are a lot of folks who make an effort to be nuanced. They have long Twitter threads on, on, on Twitter or long tweet threads on Twitter. But social media is an aspect of getting yourself out there and marketing yourself professionally that, that didn't exist a generation ago. And it takes time. It takes time and effort. Um, I would say also that just the marketplace of ideas uh, by virtue of the expansion of social media and by virtue of the democratization of the discourse, the marketplace of ideas is far more chaotic uh, it's far more vibrant. And for many issues, you could say that it's approaching saturation point. And so I'm going to take, take U.S.-China relations. Uh, when, when, you, when you propose to opine on such a, you know, such a weighty subject, you have to recognize that there are so many more voices. So whenever I write something on, on the topic, um, I write it with a tremendous degree of humility because I recognize that for any point that I might make, there are so many people who are vastly more capable of, mm-hmm. of, of opining on the subject. So I would say that that's challenging. How do you get your How do you get yourself discovered by offering nuanced commentary when, in an age of social media, perhaps the the clickbait types of headlines tend mm-hmm. to get rewarded more? Um, so I would say, in terms of making your way, uh, number one, humility, uh, and of course, DC is is not a town that it, uh, is exactly known for for wearing humility on its sleeve, but recognizing both the limitations of your own knowledge, recognizing that whatever you write. Somebody has probably thought of it before. You're standing on the shoulders of giants. So humility is important. And also in a, in a town that is known for exchanges of business cards and transactional networking, investing in long-term relationships rather than the short-term exchanges. When I think of the mentors who have been most important to me, uh, Joseph Nye, Graham Allison, uh, you, of course, I think of people who I have known over a long period of time. And I think of people... Uh, I think of people with whom I may occasionally reach out to them and ask for a favor, a, a letter of recommendation or an introduction to somebody. But I think that the vast majority of my interactions with with uh, Professor Nye, with Professor Allison are if they've written an op-ed in the paper, I saw, yeah. I saw your op-ed, or if there's a certain life achievement, or if or just saying, how are you? How are things going in your corner of the world? And so I really think that the connections, as much as I you know, dislike using that word, the connections that will serve folks well are the ones that are really not transactional, but they are real relationships in which two people respect each other and they care about each mm-hmm. other. 
So I've been thinking a little bit about this concept, this idea that this period that we're living in really comprises the end of several different sort of critical periods in our history. It's the end of almost 20 years of full-on conflict in the Middle East with all that's been involved in that and a sense that maybe we haven't been successful in the way that we had hoped. We're celebrating right around now the end of 40 years of strategic engagement between the United States and China. It's clear that relationship is changing. It's perhaps not completely clear where it's going, but that first period of engagement is coming to an end. And then also, I think we could also make the case that a period in which, at least in the political arena, the dominant views of what it meant to be an internationalist and American America's role in the world were accepted broadly in both political parties. Um, I think you could make an argument that all three of those are profoundly changing uh, right now. And because of that, it makes our careers and lives not only interesting, but challenging. I'm curious, do you sense that in your own work and in your interaction with your colleagues that some of the foundational issues are, are you know, shifting? Every day, every day. I mean, we, we you just mentioned China, and there is a now profound disillusionment. And, and, we, and we've talked about this before. There is a profound disillusionment in much of the U.S. foreign policy establishment about the course that U.S.-China relations have taken. And, and I would again point, the essay that you and Eli Ratner wrote in Foreign Affairs was a pivotal, I think it was a analytically and prescriptively was really uh, a pivotal turning point in catalyzing the discourse. And obviously the hope was that, I mean, if you read Richard Nixon's essay that he published in Foreign Affairs, I believe in 1967, he lays the foundations in that essay for what essentially came to define uh, eight administrations, China policy. So the idea is that we have a country that at the time, if there were, at the time that he wrote his piece, it was 800 million people. And Richard Nixon said, we cannot afford to have a country of this magnitude economically isolated, diplomatically isolated. We have to bring China in from the cold, recognizing, though, that China in many ways is antithetical to the United States. It's, it's uh, precepts of governance, its understanding of history, its approach to foreign policy. And so as we bring China into the fold engagement, we nonetheless have to hedge, hedge against uh, a China that might take, that might engage in strategic uh, uh, directions that might be unfavorable to us. So, so Nixon lays the foundation with engagement and hedging. And I think that the hope that had sustained eight administrations, Republican and Democrat, uh, since our opening to China was that as we engaged China more, we bring China into the fold more economically, we strengthen U.S.-China economic interdependence, uh, and, that, and as China becomes more dependent on this world order for its own economy, that those forces would those forces would mitigate some of its illiberalism at home. That those forces would mitigate some of its revisionist tendencies and its near abroad. And that hope or that assumption has foundered. Uh, and, and when I engage with Chinese interlocutors, I make the point that while the Trump administration has perhaps been more vocal in surfacing those disappointments, has perhaps been blunter in its approach to China, uh, these concerns about uh, China's actions in the South China Sea China's human rights record, uh, China's various China's economic practices, uh, intellectual property theft, and so on. These are not limited to the Trump administration. These are not just Republican concerns. These are bipartisan concerns. And so one, you see a profound disillusionment in, in the foreign policy establishment with, with the way that U.S.-China relations have gone. 
The difficulty is, and you alluded to this, is what comes next. Um, so China is certainly on the, if, if, if we're making a, a spectrum between ally and adversary, China is obviously, it's, it's closer to, an, to a competitor, it's closer to an antagonist, but it's not a full-blown unalloyed antagonist in the way that the Soviet Union was. The Soviet Union was posing a frontal assault on the post-war order. It had pretensions to a universal ideology. It was actively fomenting military revolution across the world. China is a much more complicated competitor. And for that reason, it's actually, I think, a far more, uh, it's a far more nuanced competitor. And that, for that reason, it's more challenging. So how do you deal with a country that, on the one hand, is increasingly competing with you economically, technologically, militarily, and even ideologically, but it's also a country with which you have significant socioeconomic exchanges. I mean, China accounts for one third of the international students who are enrolled at American institutions of higher learning. We have a trading relationship that runs in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, and we have a China that is a selective revisionist. And I think it's important mm -hmm. to make this point that China is chipping away at certain aspects of the post-war order. It is shoring up others. It is agnostic about others. And then outside of the post-war order, with the Belt and Road Initiative and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank as examples, it's setting up an architecture outside of the the the, the post-war order. And so, how do we deal with um, how do we deal with a complicated China? So that's that's issue one. Um, on the point that you make about the debates about America's role in the world, again, I mean, I, I see these in in at work every day. I see these in conversations every day. And I think, again, it's important to make the point that the Trump administration it has been vocal about surfacing some of this disquiet or some of these concerns about America's role in the world. But these are concerns that have been brewing for some time. And we we saw that those concerns were percolating during the Obama administration. And you mentioned our our interventions in the Middle East. I think a lot of I think a lot of Americans say, look, for almost 20 years now, we have we've been in the Middle East. We don't see tangible strategic gains. Um, if you look at Afghanistan right now, the Taliban control roughly as much territory today as they did prior to 9-11. We took this detour in Iraq. And so we have been embarked on uh, for almost 20 years, even though we've avowed the increasing centrality of the Asia Pacific, we still can't seem to extricate ourselves from the Middle East. So, so point one is, how do we prioritize? How do we rebalance to the Asia Pacific when we seem to be bogged down in the Middle East? How do we ensure that there is a greater connection between what America is doing in the world and the advancement of the middle class? Uh, many folks in the middle class haven't seen an increase in their real wages mm -hmm. since the 1970s. So we need to we need to promote a, a closer connection between U.S. engagement abroad and the advancement of the middle class at home. And also, how do we how do we craft a, a narrative and a substance based narrative whereby the advancement of the middle class is not some hoped for byproduct of U.S. engagement, but is an explicit objective. Yeah. yeah, that's something that our colleague and friend Jake Sullivan yep. has been thinking and writing about. Let me ask you, so... Uh, uh, some people would look at this picture and say, well, you know, this is, uh, it's all interesting, but this is what uh, decline looks like. This is what um, the fall of a great power resembles. Where are you on that? Do you still have confidence in the United States? Can we still play a leading role? Or in fact, are these symptoms of a larger strategic slide from, from grace as part of the American trajectory? 
So I, I suspect that I'm going to offer an answer that seems like I'm eliding your question, but I, I <laughs> promise you that I'm not. So my, my instinct is, uh, you know, Warren Buffett has a quote, or I, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something to the effect of nobody ever made money by betting against America. And we do know that there is a long history of declinist prognostications that prove premature. And you could even make the argument that declinism in, in a way, it's almost in, it seems to be almost inbuilt into the American psyche. And, uh, and so I would point to an essay that Sam Huntington wrote, um, I think it was almost to the day about 30 years ago. So Sam Huntington wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs in late 1988, and it was called The U.S. Decline or Renewal. And Sam Huntington was a prominent anti-declinist. But he has, and so he, he spends the bulk of his essay saying, this is why I believe America is not in decline. Look at its economy, look at its yeah. military power, its alliance network, so on and so forth. But he has a very interesting point near the end of his essay, which I actually think, in my judgment, is the most important part of his essay. So Sam Huntington says, I personally don't think that the United States is in decline, but declinists play the essential role in preventing decline because declinists, uh, declinists, even though I believe that their fears are analytically misguided, they compel the American body politic and they compel the American policymaking apparatus well, to get ahead of it. So if we, if we think we're in decline, well, let's take steps to to shore up our innovative capacity at home. Let's take steps to reinvest in our alliance network. Let's take steps both internally and externally to assure that we prevent this decline. So Sam Huntington says, look, I don't think we're in decline, but if you want to believe that we're in decline, and if you harness that, and this this is the critical point, if you harness that fear in a constructive way, then the fear of decline, even if it is analytically misplaced, is strategically very good. What I worry about now with with the declinism is that I I see more of a fatalistic reaction. I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm seeing now a lot more. Uh, I, I see now more and more commentaries that portray China, as I was saying earlier, as this kind of inexorable, inexorably resurgent colossus. Yeah, but we we did. I mean, if you look back at many of the countries that we have faced in a in a competitive environment, mm-hmm. we have a tendency to ten foot tall. Yes, our our competitors. We did that to the former Soviet Union, the idea that, you know, that they were inexorably dominating the situation in in Europe and elsewhere. Even in the 1990s, um, uh, concern that, you know, the Cold War was over, Japan had won 10 feet tall, you know, economic uh, political system that, you know, married everything together. And so it's not, it's, I, I would say that that is part of the American approach mm-hmm. to our competitors is we tend to overvalue their strengths and sometimes dismiss uh, their weaknesses. Absolutely. And I would say that just to do a quick a quick balance sheet, I mean, America has critical advantages. It had now, these are not some of the advantages are just luck of birth. So it's it's geography. That's sort of a luck of its of its birth, but its geography is um, is a is a huge asset. So as the joke goes, we are surrounded by friends and fish. Yeah. China, on the other hand, it, it lives in a very volatile neighborhood and has very uh, unfavorable strategic geography. Uh, if you look at America's demographic outlook, far more favorable than China's. Yeah, but on that, so I, I can recount and retell the scorecard decently as well. But let me ask you, so I think one of the challenges for us, however, uh, Ali, is that is that some of the things that we took as our strengths we have more questions about. Yeah. So I think we thought for a while that the that the purpose and approach of our democratic system was superior. I think there are more questions about that now than there were, I would say, 
you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago even. Mm -hmm. I think also the question of our diversity. I I mean, I always thought of our diversity as a strength. But for me, uh, the last two or three years have been a complete wake-up call. And so I'm I'm not sure I have the same confidence in some of those areas that I took for granted were strengths as, you know, as as you need going forward. I worry as well. I mean, if you look at uh, just to give a, a few points, if you look at uh, foreign uh, or the enrollment of international students at American uh, uh, colleges and universities, that's been in decline now for two years. If you look at America's overall openness, it doesn't seem as open. Uh, it seems that our foreign policy is not as reflective of the values that we that we promote. Um, what worries me the most in terms of so the grand strategic doesn't that, doesn't that, isn't that affected by where you sit? Like I can imagine if we were doing this recording not in internationalist cosmopolitan Washington, D.C., but we're recording from sort of Kentucky sure. uh, or some other place that, you know, has a different uh, uh, zeitgeist that the, that the argument could be finally now my views about, you know, about what matters are uh, again in ascendance in the United States. Absolutely. And yeah. it, it does dep- your your perspective on demographic trends, America's receptiveness to openness, it does depend on where you sit. Uh, and and that, I would say that how we adjudicate that issue uh, as a country, whether we become more open, less open, and this is openness in a broad sense, openness to people, openness to ideas, um, that will be a, because when I think of w- what gives America a distinctive advantage over, not just China, but just a, a distinctive advantage overall in world affairs, um, America remains the only country in the world in which you can take people from around the world creatively assimilate them, productively assimilate them, um, and in a way that America has this regenerative capacity. Every generation, it reinvents itself. Um, But what I worry about is not only the potential that we begin to underinvest in or actually actively undermine some of those strengths, Mm -hmm. I also worry about our uh, our approach vis-a-vis this post-war order, this liberal world order, which is obviously is a concept that's come under growing duress, but um, our alliance network is, a, is yeah. a singular source of strength. If we adopt and continue to persist, persist with a bilateral transactional approach to foreign policy in which allies aren't sure about our commitments to them or to this post-war order, and think about the irony, um, the post-war order is principally America's creation. And so it's this it's a strange duality in which the principal architect of the post-war order, it's now also one of its principal challengers. Yeah. It's a very difficult duality to reckon with. So I I am a congenital optimist, but I also have a lot of worries about what we are doing internally, what we are doing abroad. Um, I'm not, I am not resigned to uh, decline. I don't think decline is a fait accompli, but if we continue down the path that we are, there are some very concerning signs. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the, you know, the interesting questions is obviously we are the primary architects mm-hmm. of the post-war system. And I think undeniably, despite some of the rhetoric from uh, you know current quarters in Washington, D.C., I think we are benefactors mm-hmm. of, of that system. But it is also the case, however, though, I think even... I'm not sure any of the architects or even those that played a role in, in supporting that system ever really contemplated a world in which within that system would grow 
a strategic competitor that would be more power powerful and then would try to adjust elements of that system. I don't think, you know, we, we began to grasp that a little bit with the rise of Japan. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, there was, there was a period in the 90s where people, I have a book still gathering dust on my shelf called The Coming Conflict with Japan. Yep. Now, it seems crazy in retrospect, but I do think, I do think, that concept is more challenging uh, and more threatening than we sometimes uh, recognize. It's one thing to create a system in which we all are doing well, but the United States is doing slightly better than others. It's another to have a system in which we bear a lot of burdens, uh, but also someone up is coming up in the system uh, in a manner that's going to challenge us fundamentally. And just just a quick point on on just a quick intervention here. One of the core debates right now is among sort of China watchers and just observers of U.S. foreign policy is did we fundamentally err by integrating China into the post-war order? And so there there are a growing number of observers who argue that the United States wittingly assisted in the resurgence, the rise or actually resurgence of what is now its principal strategic rival. So now we have this this hypothetical counterfactual analysis going on. Would the United States have been better off? If it had left China out in the cold or if it had actively yeah. attempted to contain China, I, I'm i not persuaded by the counterfactual analysis, but I recognize that some of our thinking about China in retrospect, it was misguided. Ali, uh, you probably know. So we're uh, grateful we've got a bunch of wonderful listeners for Tea Leaves. Many of them are young people who are trying to make their own way like you in this career. So if you would succinctly give advice to our listeners, what would you offer them in terms of how to make their way in Washington in the Asia-focused community? One is to, as I, to reiterate, uh, be humble, but two, to be bold about putting your views out there, uh, acknowledge counter-arguments, uh, and meet as many people as you can. Good advice. That's advice that not only young people will take, but I'm going to think. <laughs> I'm going to think about that for, for the remainder of the day. Ali, thank you so much for joining uh, me today on Tea Leaves. It's really been a treat having you. Thank you so much. Uh, we've learned a lot, and it's clear that you have a career ahead of you if you want to have your own podcast. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, to our listeners, thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.